Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. So I realized this past week that much of our lives is about learning a better way to do something. It's learning a better way to do something, or it's helping others learn a better way to do something. Have you ever thought about this? A a lot of parenting is instructing our kids in a better way, right? A better way to ask for something, a better way to interrupt a conversation, a better way of doing something so they stay alive. But this isn't just true in parenting. Coaches help athletes get better at their sport. They teach them a better way to shoot a basketball, to throw a baseball, to block someone in football. We go to financial advisors because there's a better way of handling our money now and in retirement. Teachers help students learn to do their work in a better way. Administrators and teachers go to workshops to learn how to lead and teach in a better way. Medical professionals keep taking continuing ed to learn better ways to help people. Last Thursday on Thanksgiving, over 10,000 people called the Butterball Hotline to learn a better way to prepare and cook their turkey. Better ways shows up in all of our lives. And that's why this year we've been walking through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. And the series we've been in has been called A Better Way because if you're following in your notes, 1 Corinthians shows us a better way to live as God's people in this world. There's a better way. We want to look more and more like Jesus in the way we act, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we treat people. There's a better way to live. And throughout the year, Paul has instructed the Corinthians that there's a better way to live than the prideful, puffed-up way they've been living. There's a better way to live than living for our own desires and our own freedoms. There's a better way to live than following the wisdom of the world. There's a better way to live than being divided in the church over non-salvation issues. There's a better way to live than the way we see married couples and singles living all around us. There's a better way to live than not loving people. There is a better way to live than thinking anyone else is more important in the church based on how God has created them and gifted them, and that includes gender and age and people that are up front or people that are behind the scenes. There's a better way to live than living life only for the now. And there's a better way to live. Steve talked about this last week. There's a better way to live than fearing death. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we're a people of hope. There's a better way to live. And today, we come to the last chapter in this letter to the church in Corinth. Some of you want to do a fist pump right now and say, amen. This is the last chapter. And at first glance, it might seem like Paul is taking a lot of disjointed thoughts and cramming them into a chapter before the curtain closes. But I hope what we see emerge is a portrait of a community, a church that lives a better way in light of the event that changed the world. 
the resurrection. Anytime you're reading the New Testament, we've said this before, always read what immediately comes before what you're reading. It helps set the context for what you're reading. So we enter chapter 16 knowing that chapter 15 was entirely about the resurrection of Jesus and what resurrection means in our own lives. So if you're following in your notes, in light of the resurrection, Paul gives final instructions to be a healthy church. He gives final instructions to be a healthy church. So for the final time, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. Chapter 16 can be found on page 934 of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. And I... I, I would encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open on your lap because it does seem disjointed at first. And if you have that on your lap, you're going to be able to follow along and see how all of this comes together to give us some final better ways. So I think it'll benefit you if you have God's Word open. As we start, I'm going to read chapter 1, and then I'm going to invite you to read I'm going to read verse 1. I'm going to invite you to read verses 2 and 3 with me in the first gray box on your notes. And then I'll continue and read verses 3 and 4. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Now read with me if you would. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Let me continue in verses 3 and 4. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. This chapter starts with Paul answering a question that the Corinthians had asked. If you remember, this letter is a response to a letter the Corinthians had written Paul with a bunch of questions. And the words now about signify that Paul's answering one of their questions. This particular question is about giving, particularly to an offering being taken for the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church was kind of the mother church of all of these church plants across the region. And this Jerusalem church was going through great suffering and persecution. And Paul wanted these church plants that he had gone out and planted to rally around the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to alleviate their suffering and poverty. And so in these four verses, we're going to pull out three principles of giving that are helpful for us as we practice generosity. And let me pause and say this. I never cease to be blown away at the generosity of this church. It is astounding. Last week, even with our Thanksgiving food drive for Contact Ministries and Enos Elementary School, I stood here and I said, let's try to get over 6,000 items for the first time ever. And we collected over 7,000 items. And over $1,500 was given towards hams to contact ministry so people could have a ham for Christmas dinner this year. And that's just one small thing that you generously give to. It is one of the defining characteristics of our church. It is part of our DNA. This is such a generous church. 
But Paul gives us these these principles that we can continue to be generous and even get better at it. And if you're following in your notes, the first principle we pull out is that we give consistently and deliberately. We give consistently and deliberately. In verse 2, if you go back and look at that, it says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. And this is a reference to the church gathering on the first day of the week. This isn't necessarily about giving weekly versus monthly or yearly, but there's a clear pattern here that we give regularly, not just when an emotional appeal comes along or when we get a bonus at work or we have some extra money left over. The the words, if you read them, it says, put something aside. It's an ongoing imperative that is a continuous command to do something. We give consistently and deliberately. And this offering to be collected, it was to be collected by the time Paul arrived, so it had to be deliberate. They needed to think about it and be intentional with it. It wasn't to be an afterthought. And when we share deliberately, what that means is we give intentionally and we plan for it. We don't share what's left over. And that's the pattern the Bible gives us, is to give the first portion to God and his kingdom work in the world. And I believe Paul gives these principles. Because I don't know about you, but have you ever noticed that sharing and giving don't come naturally? They don't come naturally. But by giving regularly, by giving consistently, and by giving deliberately, we create a habit pattern, and it becomes more natural to give to what God is doing in the world. It creates a habit. We give consistently. We give deliberately. If you're following in your notes, we give proportionally. We give proportionally. If you go back to verse 2 again, it says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. And what this means is not everyone's going to give at the same level. There will be different proportions at which we can give And here's what we need to know. One is not better than the other. It's a heart issue of what we give. Jesus even talks about this in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. He commends a widow for giving very little. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put everything in. All she had to live on. It was a heart issue for her. She gave proportionally. It wasn't as much as others, but Jesus saw that and was overjoyed by it. We give proportionally. Let me ask you, are these principles true in your life? And if they're not, I want to encourage you to consider giving to what God is doing in the world. And not not to give because you feel guilty. Remember, this chapter comes after chapter 15 on the resurrection. The resurrection compels us to give. The grace of Christ compels us to give. We give out of grace, not out of guilt. We are overwhelmed by God's grace, and we respond with generosity. I had not practiced these principles until Sarah and I were married uh, nearly 18 years ago now. I had not practiced consistent, deliberate, proportional giving, and I just didn't understand the importance of it. And there are still some times, they're rare now, but there's still some times where I'm like, man, if I wasn't given so much money here, I could buy what I want to buy here. But God has shown me the joy of giving. 
He has rearranged my thoughts and shown me the joy of giving and partnering with what he's doing right here locally and around the world. And if you've never considered giving this way, consistently, deliberately, and proportionally, I want to encourage you to start thinking about that today. I don't have time to go into the biblical basis of giving. I put off uh, to the side in your notes, Jeff gave a message on January 5th, 2014 called Highly Motivated Giving that lays out the biblical principles for giving. That might be helpful for you. It's important to understand what the Bible says about that. But Paul's encouraging the Corinthians in this better way of living generously in light of the resurrection. And there's one final principle that I want to pull out as we give. And if you're following in your notes, we give responsibly. We give responsibly. Whatever you give your money to, you should give responsibly. You should give in an educated way. Paul writes in verses 3 and 4, Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. And Paul's saying responsible people will handle this money. Unfortunately, there are innumerable examples today of money being misused by churches in our culture, and we need to be responsible stewards with the money you generously give individually and corporately. And I want you to be aware that any money you generously give here is handled responsibly. We have a finance team that's made up of men and women who are experts in the field of finances and budgeting. They make recommendations to the elder team who review expenditures and approve the finances each month. And each year we have an external uh, independent audit done And I'm proud to say to you that each year we've done that, it has come back without any findings, completely clean. And we take that seriously because when you give generously, we want to steward the gifts responsibly. So no, we take that seriously. Next week, we're taking our annual mission thank you offering. You can read about that in your bulletin as well. It's going to go for a local and an international purpose. Locally, the James Project is a foster organization. One of the things they do is they purchase houses, and this is the fifth house you see. They've purchased four houses so far, paid them all off. What they do is they, they partner with a family, and they rent this house to that family for $1 a year, and this Christian family comes in. They're able to take more children into the home in foster care, raise them in a Christian environment, and point them to Jesus. The offering next week, half of it will go to help them purchase this fifth house. The international focus is going to Paul Rollett and his organization, Companion with the Poor. Paul works with church planners in Manila in the Philippines, and they go into the slums, and they plant churches, and they provide holistic ministry to people who need health care and education and clean water, and they need the gospel. And this training center will include a chapel. It's where they will train church planners and missionaries to go out to plant even more churches. 100% of what you give next week will be handled responsibly and go to these two organizations. I want to let you know that in the past few years, what you have given to has uh, allowed us to partner with Lake Springfield Baptist Camp in building a new camp manager home. The house previous to that was unlivable, and your generous giving built that house. We also want you to know that 
in Ethiopia, when I was there in 2012, the medical clinic that the Fowlers worked out of was that. And they operated on people in that, and they practiced pharmacy in that, and they did uh, clinicals in that. Hundreds of people a day. Because of your generosity, the Fowlers were able to build a new clinic where they can operate and do pharmacy and practice clinicals. But also, you gave so much that they built a freshwater well in front of that clinic. And they have seen people come to Christ just through clean water. In addition, that clinic also houses a pharmacy where they're able to keep medication cold uh, because of your generous giving. Two years ago, you gave so much that we were able to give $100,000 to Fresh Visions Community Church to help them finish their building where they're now worshiping on the north end of town. In addition, that same year, we gave over $100,000 to Jeff and Annie Dieselberg in Bangkok, Thailand to help them fight sex trafficking and slavery, and they were able to send home and repatriate over 30 women that year. Last year, you gave so generously that Misael and Doris Loera were given a new house after their house was destroyed by flooding from a hurricane. This is just in the last four years. The generosity blows me away, and next week could be another great week in the history of our church as we give to the James Project and Companion with the Poor and see what God might want to do with that offering. So having urged the Corinthians to prepare their special financial assistance, Paul then transitions into his travel itinerary and what he wants to do. He gives a brief description of when he wants to come see them, and this gives us an idea of the value he places on personal relationships. If you are following in your Bibles, I'll read verses 5 to 9. Paul writes, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey, wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. As a reminder, Paul had planted this church in Corinth four to five years before this letter was written, and he wants to come back and see them. He doesn't just want to stop by in passing. He wants to share life with them. And this was Paul's pattern. Paul would plant a church, and then he would want to go back and see them and teach them, not just with words, but by the way he lived his life. And we've seen in this series, there's a better way of discipleship, of becoming more like Jesus, and it's done best in person in relationships. And Paul's bringing it up again here. The better way to live is in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me ask you this. Are you in a community with other believers outside of this room? It's critical. If you're not in a life group, you'll have the opportunity to join one in January. It's critical for growing in your faith to do life with other people. And Paul is pointing that out in this travel itinerary. Paul then moves into verses 10 to 12, where he begins to give the church some final, better way instructions. I'm going to read verses 10 to 12. You can follow along in your Bibles. It says, When Timothy comes... See to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt, 
Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. These two verses make sense when we understand that Corinth was a city where only the best and brightest came to play. It was a city where credentials and status were everything, and we've seen how this arrogance had infiltrated the church. Paul spent a large part of the letter dealing with this arrogance and puffed upness that he saw in people, where an individual attended school mattered. Where they worked mattered. Their degree mattered. How much money they made mattered. What gifts and talents someone had mattered. Whether you were a male or a female mattered. And being Greek mattered. Being Greek mattered. It was a city where relationships between Jews and Gentiles was volatile at best. And in many cases, they hated one another. And Paul tells the Corinthian church to receive Timothy, which is interesting to me that he even has to tell them to receive him. And then in verse 10, it seems to allude to the fact that Timothy might have had reason to be afraid to come to Corinth. Verse 11 says not to treat him with contempt. Other translations say don't despise him. And here's the reason that Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. It's because Timothy was biracial and multi-ethnic. And he knew Corinth was a city where being Greek mattered. And in Acts 16.1, we're told that Timothy is the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but whose father was a Greek. And Paul instructs the church in Corinth to live a better way. If you're following in your notes, be a church that reaches across every dividing line. Be a church that reaches across every dividing line, including race, status, gender, ethnicity. Love your brothers and sisters. Paul has spoken so much of unity in this letter. So much of unity. And this is another example of unity. Timothy is our brother. Love him when he comes. He's part of the family. Paul then moves into this rapid-fire series of ways to live as God's people. The Corinthians were constantly bombarded with the culture. So Paul gives five ways to live as God's people. The first one, if you're following in your notes, or would you read this with me, actually, in the second grade box in your notes? These are the five better ways. It says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, Be strong. Do everything in love. Paul's just starting to get amped up now, and he's saying, here's some better ways. Here's some better ways. If you're following in your notes, be on your guard, which means guard your doctrine and behavior. Guard your doctrine and behavior. This phrase means to be awake or to be watchful. It it means to have discernment. And the New Testament actually lists several things that we're to be on guard for. One is Satan, our enemy. Another is temptation. How are we tempted? Be awake. Another is apathy and indifference. That's big for us in the West. Apathy and indifference. Another one the New Testament lists is something we should be on guard for is false teachers. 
Friends, we will be challenged in our faith and we need to be on guard and be awake of what we believe and how we live that out. We need to live with our spiritual eyes open. Be on guard. He also instructs them, if you're following your notes, to stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. If you go back to chapter 1, many of the Corinthians had come to look on the truth of God's word as foolishness, as they were corrupted by the influence of their unbelieving friends. And Paul says here, stand firm. Don't give in. And friends, just like the Corinthians, if we are to be firm in our faith, we must be well taught in the word. We've got to know the word, looking at everything by God's truth and God's standards. The question we ask first is, what does the Bible say about that? And that guides our decision-making. Stand firm in the faith. It's a better way to live. The third way, if you're following in your notes, is to be courageous, which means to grow into maturity, if you're following. To grow into maturity. Paul had already said this in chapter 14. He said, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. Start thinking like adults. And he's again reminding his friends to grow up. Act like adults rather than children. It's a push away from spiritual immaturity. Grow up in your faith. Don't stay shallow. And so let me ask you, as you review your faith, are you farther along this year than you were last year? Are you farther along this month than you were last month? What spiritual practices, whether it's Bible reading or prayer or fasting, solitude, how are you growing into maturity? What are you practicing? There's a pastor in California that wrote this. He said, there is no substitute for being alone with God. If you don't have time, you need to quit something to make room. Skip a meal, cancel a meeting, end some regular commitment. There is literally nothing more important you could do today. Are you growing into maturity? It's the better way. What steps do you need to take to do that? Paul then goes on, number four. He says, this is the better way. Be strong, which means be strengthened. Be strengthened. This is a passive verb, and I wish the translators would have translated it in a passive way, because when I read be strong, it means, hey, Brian, pull up your, your bootstraps, get to work, and try harder, and be strong for God. And the passive verb here says, be strengthened in the Lord. It's an acknowledging God and trusting Him. It's not trying harder. It's acknowledging God and trusting him. This idea is exhibited in one of Paul's great prayers found in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. Would you read this with me on the screen? This is the Apostle Paul writing this too. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Be strengthened by acknowledging and trusting the Lord. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strengthened. And then in verse 14, he summarizes the entire book. If you're following in your notes, he says, do everything in love. Do everything in love. This was the pinnacle message of chapter 13, and Paul called it the most excellent way. 
the better way? Are we loving God and loving others? Or is our life just a clanging symbol? Rapid fire, better ways to live, Corinthians. And rapid fire, better ways to live, Cherry Hills. Be on your guard. Be awake. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strengthened. Do everything in love. And now we move into verses 15 to 20, and they flow out of, and they illustrate the command in verse 14 to do everything in love. I'm going to read this, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, this lengthy portion of Scripture from verse 15 to 20. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Let me start with this, and then I'm going to go back to verse 15 and look at that a little bit more. So uh, some of you have said, man, my least favorite part of the service is when we stand and greet one another. I'm an introvert. That just kind of makes me uncomfortable. I wish we really didn't have to do that. It's flu and cold season. I'm going to get sick. It's not my favorite thing. We could do the holy kiss thing, (laughs) right? I mean, it could always be worse. (laughs) Paul's instruction was the holy kiss. We've deviated from that a little bit. Let's go back to verse 15. Just want to say that. Just want to say that. What verse 15 to 20 gives us is a picture of the global church. At the time this letter was written, local churches were spreading broadly and rapidly. And you can see on the screen, there's this network of churches. Jerusalem is the mother church. You can see Jerusalem down in the far right. And then Paul took these missionary journeys and planted these churches all over Asia and into Greece. You can see Corinth over near the left side of the screen. So there's this network of local communities, and they are tied together. In many uh, situations, they would send representatives from one church to go see another church. For example, the people listed in verse 17, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, who were believers in the Corinthian church, had traveled to see Paul in Ephesus. In verse 19, the churches in the province of Asia sent their greetings. So Paul is saying, the, the churches in Ephesus and Pisidia, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Perga, They all send their greetings to you. And then in verse 19, Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned. They're a husband and wife team who were significant partners in the gospel. They used to live in Rome before they were kicked out. And then they met Paul in Corinth. There's this network going on in the region. And that's why we see these people listed. And what it tells us is that one's membership in a local church connects him or her to a global movement, a global family. We're not just part of a local community. 
We are not just part of a church in Springfield, Illinois. We are part of a kingdom found all over the world. If you notice the language our missionaries use when they're on stage, frequently you will hear something like this. We want you to know what Cherry Hills is accomplishing in Amsterdam, in Austria, in Cambodia, in Thailand, in Ethiopia, in Kenya, in the Philippines, in Spain, in Belgium, in Mexico, in Sweden, in Myanmar. It's a partnership in the gospel. And Paul is calling the Corinthian church and he's calling us to recognize we are some part of something so much bigger than our local gathering. This is why Paul was taking the offering we talked about for the Jerusalem church. It wasn't all about the money. It was about this partnership in the gospel and the offering was a powerfully tangible demonstration of how the gospel transcends race and ethnicity and culture and tradition. This is why we don't view other churches as competition. We prayed for Westside Christian this morning. One of my good friends is preaching there this morning. It's why we pray for another church each week. We want to cheer them on in their kingdom work. It's why we don't just support one missionary in one part of the world. We support missionaries across the world because there's a better way for the local church to exist. And if you're following in your notes, the better way is to recognize we're part of God's global kingdom. We are part of God's global kingdom. It's so much bigger than us. We just get to be a part of it. Now, if you had been sitting in the church in Corinth and you received this letter, you would have noticed a sudden change between verse 20 and verse 21, and you would have noticed it in the penmanship. At that point, the penmanship would have changed from the the neat, tidy script of a scribe to the large, heavy scratches from Paul's own hand. He tells us he writes that way in the book of Galatians. And in verse 21, it says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which was a sign of affection. It was always a sign of affection to get a letter written in someone's own hand. And Paul just wants to say, "I I love you. I'm with you. And then he writes in verse 22, If you're following along in your Bibles, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. And I read that, and I think to myself, man, we're three verses away from the end of this book. Paul, could you not just have said, grace, peace, and love, I'm out. Why why are you cursing people? Three verses to go, man. He calls down a curse of judgment. But listen, this is important. He calls down a curse of judgment on those within the church who call themselves followers of Jesus but do not love the Lord or love other people. He's not really, really important. He's not talking about unbelievers here. He's not talking about unbelievers. Paul is talking about believers inside this church causing chaos and heartache. If love is the most excellent way, if we're not loving, then we're not part of God's family. I read that this week in 1 John as part of our New Testament reading plan. Paul is writing this warning to those people who say they love the Lord, but then they live a completely different way. And the reason... I don't like this is because I want the grace, but I don't want the truth. 
I, I like the grace. I don't like the judgment. But there isn't grace without truth, and there isn't justice without judgment. And Paul loves the Corinthians. This is really important. Paul loves them enough. He's not saying this to shame them or guilt them. He loves them enough to warn them. There are consequences for some of you if you continue to live this way. It's a good warning for all of us to check ourselves and make sure our behavior matches our belief. It's a good warning. So Paul calls down this judgment, and then he calls down the Savior himself with the exclamation, Come, Lord. Come, Lord. The word used is Maranatha. Some of you have heard that word before. And it expresses this eager longing that the early church had for the return of Christ. And if we're honest, we have lost that longing. We like the right here and the right now. I include myself in that. But last week, Steve did an outstanding job of helping us see the hope and beauty of the resurrection and what awaits us. He read this quote from Charles Swindoll, and it stopped me in my tracks. I don't know if I heard anything after what he said. This was so impactful to me. He said, I'm going to read this again for you. This is a quote from Charles Swindoll about the return of Christ. And the resurrection, he says, never again will we worry about terminal diseases. Never again will we cope with the frailties of old age. Never again will we plan funerals, execute wills, and worry about the loved ones we leave behind. Never again will we need to nurse the lingering emptiness and grief we feel when a spouse, a child, or a parent is taken from us by the enemy. When we are raised up from the grave or are transformed, the impulse to sin will be eradicated. Never again will we suffer as victims of robberies or violent crimes. Never again will people devastate families through incurable addictions. Never again will marriages be broken, children abused, families abandoned. Instead, sin itself will be vanquished by life, immortality, and eternal righteousness, a victory over sin and death that can come only through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that is why we say, come, Lord. That is why we say, come, Lord. And if you're following in your notes, Paul is teaching us that the better way to live is to long for the return of Jesus to make all things right. It is to live in such a way that we long for that. The better way is living today for that day. And Paul then closes the letter by writing in verses 23 and 24, would you read the last words of 1 Corinthians in the third gray box in your notes? Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. I found this interesting as I studied this week. Amen is this word that's it's kind of like a stamp of approval. It's a so be it. That's what the word means. Amen was not part of the best manuscripts that we have of the book of 1 Corinthians. And in the grand scheme of things, that really doesn't mean a whole lot. But I find it interesting that Paul's last words to the Corinthians was a reaffirmation of his central conviction in Christ Jesus. There is a better way to live. It's in Christ. And if you're following in your notes, Paul finishes the letter with the words, in Christ Jesus. 
the most important, better way. In Christ. In Christ is used 93 times in the New Testament, 75 times by the Apostle Paul, 12 times in this letter alone. In Christ, we are given grace. In Christ, we are loved by God with an inseparable love. In Christ, we are redeemed and forgiven of all our sins. In Christ, we have become new creations and sons and daughters of the Most High God. In Christ Jesus, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. In Christ, we are part of God's global kingdom with a mission and a purpose in this world. And in Christ, we will rule and reign with him for eternity. Friends, if you are in Christ this morning, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ, then what Paul would say to you and what I say to you is live up to what you've attained. Live up to what you've attained. Know who you are and live out of that identity. Know who you are in Christ and live out of that identity in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. So thankful you're here. But like Paul, I would plead with you, be reconciled to God. There's nothing more important in this world and nothing more important in the life after this world than being in Christ. In Christ. So we're going to close this series by singing the song, In Christ Alone. If you are in Christ, then sing this song with full voice as your declaration that you live this better way. And if you're not in Christ then I invite you to listen as we declare these truths. And I encourage you to pay attention to the words on the screen and consider who Jesus is to you as we sing this. And if you can sing these words for yourself, please declare these words with us this morning. We are in Christ. And it is the better way, the most important way to live. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.